Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello, you're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, it's already the most controversial tournament in World Cup history. With just 10 months until kickoff, Qatar is still struggling to put the beautiful game before the ugliness of the tactics that went into the bid and the human rights abuses which thousands of workers have suffered in construction. But with millions of fans now set to descend later this year, what can they expect? We're going to speak to a journalist called John Arledge from the Sunday Times. He spent a week there recently and he's going to talk us through what fans and players should expect. And then staying with that subject, I'm going to be joined by Irish businessman George Mullen, whose company, the SIS Group, are responsible for delivering the football pitches during the competition at the State of the Art facilities. And then finally, we'll hear about a new and promising partnership between two of Ireland's biggest universities and learn of their ambitious plans to solve employers' problems by creating work-ready graduates who can hit the ground running. You can contact the show on email at takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, when Qatar first launched its bid to host the World Cup, many of us doubted that such a small nation with absolutely no football history to speak of and a very unforgiving and unhospitable climate could ever pull off such an audacious coup. But against all the odds, it's happening. And I'm joined now by journalist John Alridge, who spent some time in Qatar checking out the situation on the ground and what fans might expect. John, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. John, so your newspaper was very much involved at the uh, outset in exposing some of the nefarious activity that went on in the run-up to the bid. So you might start by addressing the issue of how Qatar actually secured the bid and the subsequent revelations that happened after. Qatar secured the bid in 2010, uh, quite a long time ago now. And as you say, there was some arched eyebrows, shall we say, as to how such a small nation with which had never hosted, indeed had never competed in the World Cup before, might have actually won the bid. And so the Sunday Times Insight team began to look into some of the bidding process and found that a man called Mohammed bin Hammam, who was Qatar's top football official, had used secret slush funds to make dozens of payments, totaling more than £3.8 million to senior officials in world football to create a groundswell of support for the Emirates. So there was some... um, there was some interesting financial transactions, shall we say, um, around uh, the uh, the bidding process. Now, in 2014, uh, there was a, an investigation into the corruption ordered by FIFA, uh, the football's world governing body itself, and conducted by a U.S. lawyer. Now, that cleared Qatar of wrongdoing, but there are still lots and lots of unanswered questions and lots and lots of outstanding litigation. So there's an indictment in the U.S. lodged by American prosecutors last year. It alleges that three FIFA executive committee members received payments to back Qatar's bid. Um, since then, other things have come to light, but it, it's... Um, the bidding process itself um, was a very, uh, very um, torturous, shall we say, affair. And many of those involved, not least Seth Blatter, who many of your listeners will uh, will remember, who is then president of FIFA, uh, have departed uh, in disgrace. And despite all of the revelations and the investigations, there's nothing that's going to stop the World Cup from proceeding. And so Qatar are now making their own preparations. It's just going to go ahead. That's right. 
Correct. Nothing can stop it. I mean, nothing would really have stopped it. I mean, I think if there had been some prosecutions or something, perhaps it would have been. But but the difficulty is, he once you've once you've awarded the bid to a, a nation, and that nation happens to be the richest nation on earth, uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna find it very difficult to take it away because um, uh, put it this way, they they're not short of money for lawyers. It's a very interesting country. It's small, but it's extremely wealthy. Can we just start now by talking about the situation on the ground as you found it when you travelled there? Um, there was lots of really ambitious infrastructure planned. Has it been realised? Yes, the infrastructure is, is excellent. One thing they have definitely spent their petrodollars on and spent them well is infrastructure. So the airport is a really stunning piece of work and it will process a lot of fans up to 200,000 a day very efficiently. There's loads of new motorways. There's a fabulous metro. The metro is brilliant. It's got three classes. It's got a gold class, a standard class and a family carriage for, for women who don't want to travel with unmarried men or, or chanting mobs of football fans. And it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, the stadiums themselves are some of the finest you'll ever see. Uh, they're really imaginatively done. I mean, one of, one of them looks like a, a Bedouin tent, a giant Bedouin tent, complete with this sort of traditional style carpeted walls on the inside of a massive flaming torch to to welcome fans that they're, they're not short of gas to burn uh, and then the, the one in which the final will be played Lucille uh, looks like uh, the Allianz Arena uh, by Munich Stadium on the outside with this gorgeous kind of outside almost like a lattice outside and inside it's a bit similar to the Etihad Stadium at Manchester City's ground um, in Manchester only double the size at, at 90,000 seats so no I mean this this <laughs> tournament you could say lots of things about this tournament mm-hmm. one thing that is absolutely true is it will look absolutely fantastic on television and fans will be getting around from stadium to stadium very easily and did you attend uh, matches when you were there john i went to the arab cup and saw a couple of arab cup games and what was the atmosphere like in in a stadium it was great. Yeah. Mean, they, there was some suggestion earlier that, that there wouldn't be any fans but the fans were there the fans were raucous now obviously it's the arab cup so they're supporting their local teams but I'm sure it'll be the same atmosphere perhaps even better when the bigger international uh, teams uh, like uh, you know Brazil and, and, and France and, and, and so on start playing because I think people will get really behind it so, so they'll be full they'll be noisy they, they've actually been the stadiums have been designed to be particularly noisy if you look at the way the shape of them and some of the surfaces they really want it to be a, a very very loud experience and so I think I think the atmosphere will be will, will be will be fine all of that all of that side of the tournament, the actual logistics and the stadiums and the playing of the games and what they'll look like locally and internationally on TV, I think will be absolutely fine. And culturally, what's it going to be like for fans uh, who are used to travelling to these trips, not just for football, but for holidays and recreation? Are there restrictions in terms of social behaviours that people need to be aware of before they travel to to Qatar? It's a conservative country Mm. and there are rules strict rules around alcohol and informal rules about behavior. So the strict rules around alcohol will mean that you won't probably, they haven't quite decided, but I don't think they're going to they're gonna change the rules. The current rules ban bringing duty-free into the country. And I don't think they're going to change those. Mm. Um, now, that will be an issue because a lot of fans will either ignore the uh, the rules and turn up with lots of booze anyway. Uh, and, and that's going to be a problem at the airport because they're going to have it confiscated and they're not going to be pleased about that. It'll be returned when they leave, but 
that's a bit useless by then. They wanted to have enjoyed it. So that's going to be one area where people are going to have to be aware. Uh, there will be drinking that is allowed, um, but there will it will be largely restricted to hotels for Westerners and fan zones, which will be sort of near the stadiums. What they don't want is lots and lots of fans drinking freely around the city. Um, that's because alcohol is clearly you know not in any shape or form part of the culture and many people find drinking uh, certainly people being drunk offensive so the, the 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 drinking will be physically separate from the rest of the city so the places you will go will be separate from the city other than that you can wander around you can do exactly what you want um what you need to do is what people already do in dubai and uh, abu dhabi and other parts of the middle east you need to kind of be, you know, reasonably well behaved. Um, if any fans get particularly rowdy, they might find themselves being taken away and um, put somewhere to sober up. They probably won't be arrested. There's no real restrictions on what you can wear as long as you wear something faintly reasonable. I mean, if you turn up to a game in a bikini, uh, that's going to be a bit of a problem. Um, but, um, you know, it's not going to be that hot in November, December. So those kinds of things, sort of immodest dress, mm. I don't think are really going to be an issue. I think they'll, they'll be sort of quite relaxed. Um, the other issue that's come up is gay rights. Will gay fans be welcome? Um, I think they will. I think you'll see rainbow flags. You mm -hmm. might see some, some, some protests in favour of LGBT rights on the Corniche. And I, I think they, those will pass off reasonably peacefully. So I think, you know, apart from the hard ban on bringing in duty-free, there will be places to go where you can have a drink if you want. And people will be free, I think, to express themselves, you know, men, women, gay, straight, whatever. I think, I think that, that part of it will be fine. And you didn't get any sense that if there were to be uh, unruly behaviour that the policing would be particularly aggressive? Well, you raise uh, the, the right point, of course, because in the past, when uh, uh, demonstrations erupt in various parts of the Gulf, the normal response is to send the police in or the army and crack heads. Mm. And that tends to be the default position. Um, that I don't think is going to happen. The police are having sensitivity training, which is quite amusing. Uh, and they will be told in no uncertain terms, no matter what, don't arrest people, let people do what they want to do. And there will be protests. I'm sure there will be LGBT uh, protests um, on the Corniche. I'm sure that there will be protests in favour of women's empowerment. I'm sure there'll be protests, uh, you know, to trying to draw attention to the conditions that uh, some of the migrant labourers who've built the stadiums have been uh, living in and working under. In, in, and, and this will all go ahead. And I think they, they will be under enormous pressure to do nothing. And I think they know they need to let these protests happen and protest peacefully. The only unknown is if the protests are really big and go on a long time and possibly get a bit rowdy, that that is going to be a provocation. And I'm not sure how they will react to that. Uh, let's see. Again, my, my hunch is they know how awful it would look if they were seen to be repressing free speech and demonstrations. Um, on the Corniche and elsewhere around Doha. And I think they'll probably stand well back and just let people let people protest in the way they want to. It's not part of the culture there. It's going to be difficult. But again, I think probably cool heads will prevail. Now, you mentioned there the um, issue of human rights uh, abuses, which, uh, you know, I think is going to be something that does continue to dominate the debate before the World Cup and, and maybe even during it through the protests. But um, you visited uh, the labour camps when you were there. Um, can you just give us a flavour of the conditions uh, which some workers are subjected to? I saw two camps. I saw a camp 
related to the World Cup. It was for workers building the Lusail Stadium, the, the fancy one mm. where the final will be played. And I went to a non-World Cup um, camp, which is just for anyone building roads or bridges or metros or what have you. Um, the conditions in both camps were not the sort of place that many of your listeners or indeed you or I would want to live and work. They are pretty basic. You get a room which is maybe two and a half meters wide by three and a half meters long. You'll have four workers, All these are all male, um, four men with uh, sort of wire wire framed metal framed mattresses and beds in the corner uh, a little locker for personal possessions and a, and, a, and a pull around curtain for some semblance of privacy so so it, it is you know it is not uh, your you know it's not the four seasons mm. um that said you know there is wi-fi there are these the food is decent from what i saw um and, and varied the bathrooms are clean they're not luxurious bathrooms but they in the showers they're clean um it's good air conditioning um by by the standards of the region which are frankly speaking pretty low the labor camps in qatar are in large part okay and improving and they have made they have made some improvements there. They do still have a problem with some camps, which are substandard. And you'll have maybe as maybe as many as eight men in a room designed for far fewer and far worse showers and loos and far worse food. And they have been slow, in my opinion, to to get rid of those. They are trying. Um, the excuse they make, which I don't think is going to wash with many people, is that the big contractors that they depend upon to build all this infrastructure are really powerful. And, you know, they've used this model of labor for decades in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Qatar and getting them to change their ways and improve things and, and pay people more um, takes time. Well, I, I think most people would say it's taken long enough already. The other thing the government has to be fair to them is they have instituted a minimum wage. It's the first time in the Gulf that there is a minimum wage. Um, and and that's, that, is, that is a first, that is genuine improvement. And I think they are generally sort of committed to trying to sort things out. The problem they've got is they've left it very, very, very late. You've written about um, an ancient practice known as kafala um, in your article. Um, this was the, the tradition really that locked workers in. Can you talk us through what has happened there? That doesn't exist anymore, does it? The government who's been working with the ILO, which is the UN agency that um, monitors international labour standards, um, they've been working together and they have agreed to scrap the kafala system and it has now been scrapped. The kafala system essentially meant that the workers were tied to their employer, that they couldn't really change jobs or in some cases leave the country mm. without their employer's permission and their employers sometimes held their passport. So it was a pretty feudal setup. That has now gone. Now, um, workers still say it's quite difficult to move jobs or leave without their employer's consent because their employers are pretty aggressive with them and they say that they'll try and get them deported anyway if they try and leave their jobs or uh, they'll get them reported for absconding and they'll get arrested so they 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 complain that although it's been scrapped um, it's not being honored by all parties particularly some of the employers but it is it is definitely progress um, and it shows that some of the pressure and criticism from the from, from the West, effectively, about the system there 
has actually forced them to address the issues. The problem, again, as I said earlier, is it's very, very late in the day. I mean, if you talk to the government people privately in Qatar, they will they will tell you off the record that, you know, they should have got a grasp, a grip on this years and years and years ago. And here we are with only just a few months to go to kick off. And, you know, it's still an issue. And, and it's they didn't realise that, you know, they would come under such close scrutiny uh, and, and they've, they've, they've been pretty wrong-footed by it, which is a shame because actually, you know, they should have done this and could have done this earlier. They would have got themselves out of a problem and workers would have been much better treated. One of the other issues that you addressed in the piece was the issue of carbon neutrality and the government there have made uh, the very fanciful, I think, claim that this is going to be a carbon neutral event. It's been greeted with a lot more scepticism than I think they'd like. But they are doing some imaginative things with the stadia after they're they're used. Can you talk us through some of the initiatives that they've brought in to make this a carbon neutral event? Yes, they've one of the stadiums, nine seven four, is recyclable. It's sort of built with shipping containers, nine hundred and seventy four, hence the name, and it can be dismantled and taken away for a different tournament. So that's sort of you know that's one thing. Uh, they've got local sourcing of materials, better use of water, an eight hundred megawatt solar farm in the desert. The metro is obviously greener than just driving around, and it's jolly nice too. All the diesel buses they used to have have been replaced with electric ones. The government is purchasing carbon credits to offset the flights. They are they are trying. Now, you know, is it going to be carbon neutral? Well, of course it's not, um, you know, because, <laughs> because the whole world is going to be flying into uh, into in, into Qatar and that creates um, a certain carbon footprint, to put it mildly. A lot of people will be flying in on a daily basis from Dubai and Abu Dhabi for games. So I don't think they're going to get there. But I do think they have made some effort and they deserve some plaudits for this in trying at least to address it. The mistake they've made is, is by sort of claiming carbon neutrality, which I think no one really thinks is reasonable or even feasible. Um, they should have perhaps said that they're going to do their best. And, and their best actually is, you know, it's, it's, it's better than a lot of other countries would do. And, and they are, you know, there are some things that are commendable there. But will it be carbon neutral? No, it won't. Um, John, I wanted to finish up by just looking at this issue of soft disempowerment. It's a phrase that you used in your article from an author by uh, Dr. Paul Birmingham. Uh, it's, it's used to kind of describe something that happens when a nation tries but fails to improve its image through big sporting ticket events like this. It can backfire and it, it may be the case for Qatar that in bringing this attention on themselves, uh, they... Um, will ultimately rue the international attention that has come down on them. But what are your views of it now? Certainly, they have bitten off a lot. And it's interesting, if you look at the region, you know, even mighty, flashy, big-spending Dubai has never, ever mm-hmm. tried to get an event even remotely as big as this. I mean, Dubai does a bit of cricket, does a bit of tennis, um, does the F1, uh, sorry, Abu Dhabi does the F1, and Dubai does um, um, some other tournaments. But nothing, nothing, no other neighbouring country, not the UAE uh, in particular, has tried to, 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 to essentially host the biggest party, the biggest event in the world, and certainly the biggest sporting event post-COVID, which makes it even bigger. Mm. And the reason why Dubai has never done that is quite sensibly its rulers have worked out that if the eyes of the world are upon you, as they will be in an event like that, that is going to be a very, very uncomfortable place to be. And those societies are really not prepared for that level of scrutiny. They don't have an independent press. They're just not used to it. And, And Qatar 
I'm afraid, has found itself a little bit overwhelmed. Mm. Um, it tries to explain it away by saying, oh, it's a bit sort of imperialist. It's a, it's a sort of slightly prejudiced Western reaction. And there might be a little bit of something in that. Um, they, they, they have other cards to play. But the bottom line is, I think they wanted something huge. I think they wanted to, to, to use their money to buy, create, invest in something huge. I don't think they really thought through how huge the implications of that would be, how much it would focus attention on them. And they have been a little bit caught. They are very trying very, very hard to change things. I mean, you'll see, you know, the appointment of David Beckham as, mm-hmm. as an ambassador is one of those. They're really trying hard to kind of shift perceptions. But it's a common refrain in, in this interview. It's very, very, very late. And uh, if, if, if it does turn out to be pretty scratchy for them, uh, I'm afraid they only have themselves to blame because, you know, okay, they did bid for it. They did get it, but they've had you know, the best part of 12 years to prepare for it. You know, they can't be surprised at the level of scrutiny. They haven't really dealt with it. So look, in the end, when it, when it actually kicks off, when the first ball is kicked, and it looks great on telly and everyone goes out in the sun. My hunch is it will probably be okay, but it's absolutely not guaranteed. And it's also not guaranteed that Qatar will recoup the investment, will will improve its image to the value of £155 billion, which is what they've spent on it. Will you travel to the World Cup yourself? I would love to go. I actually haven't got a ticket, but uh, I would I would love to go. I mean, I don't have any particular objection to going. Goodness me, you know, I couldn't as a journalist because I'm interested and I cover the story. But even as a you know football fan, and I am, I would I would love to see England play um, or any of the home nations for that matter play um, in Qatar. I I mean, I they are they 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 desperately want this to work, and I think actually. They, they've probably done just about enough to deserve it. They do have to make sure that everything is all around the night, particularly on the politics and, and demonstrations. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a, an unanswered question so far. But I know I would go. And, and I listen, I wish them well. They've got very ambitious plans. They want to hold regular Formula One Grand Prix. They have the Asian Games in 2030. They even plan to bid for the Olympics in 2036, which I presume would have to be a winter, a weird winter summer Olympics because you couldn't run uh, 100 meters, even 100 meters in the in the summer heat. So um, they've got big plans, and I I think you know I'm gonna be I'm gonna be generous spirited at the end. I think I think it'll probably be okay. And you know, let's not forget, people love football more than life itself. So once the games start, yeah, and... you may find that attention <laughs> exactly. turns away from some of the uh, uh, some of the more problematic issues and is focused on the yeah, focus particularly on the... If, yeah. if in this country in in the UK I should say, particularly if England does well uh, as happened last summer. Um, if England get to the semis or even beyond, people are going to start celebrating Qatar. <laughs> John, don't lose the run of yourself. It hasn't started and you already have the UK <laughs> in the semis. I'm, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to, to leave it there. We've run out of time today. What It's been a fascinating insight, uh, John. Thank you for joining us today. That's John Arledge of the Sunday Times. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now to continue with the World Cup 2022 theme, I'm joined now from Sligo by businessman George Mullen, who's owner of a company called Sis Group. George, you're very welcome to the programme. Hi, Mandy. How are you? George, um, yeah, I, 
I was very intrigued to, to hear your story. You might just start off, George, by telling us how does a Sligo man end up building football pitches all over the world? How did you start off this business? <coughs> well, a bit, a bit of luck, I think. Um, I used to work in pharmaceuticals and I was based in Amsterdam when uh, I had a choice of being heading back to the US where I'd lived for five years or really trying to do a business myself, uh, start a business myself as opposed to working for multinationals. Um, this business came up, uh, it was going into administration. And so, uh, yeah, so we bought it. And uh, <clears throat> I think what I like to tell everybody is I took a 98.4% pay cut. So that was uh, just over 20 years ago. Well, well, it's obviously paid off in spades for you, George. But could you just talk to us about what this is group is and what it does simply we design and build sports pitches sports surfaces uh, all over the world so we have offices in dubai and uh, moscow istanbul uh, amsterdam and then we have a manufacturing facility for what most people would know as uh, artificial carpet or astroturf which is one of our competitors but that's the brand name so we, we basically provide sports surfaces, everything from tennis courts to hockey to rugby football to World Cup stadiums, uh, pretty much all over the world. And it's led you to some far-flung places, hasn't it? Could you just talk to us about some of the projects that your company's been involved in over the years? Sure. I mean, what we're probably best known for was the World Cup in Russia in 2018, where we designed and built uh, six of the stadium pitches, um, including the World Cup final, which brought a lot of pressure on us because it's probably the most high profile event in the world. And uh, we contracted for 45 hours of play on the pitch and we ended up doing 85 hours plus the World Cup final. So that was a little bit of pressure. But we, I suppose we're a little bit different to most companies in that we're prepared to work anywhere in the world. So we're currently in China doing a project. We finished uh, down in Argentina doing uh, the River Plate Stadium uh, late last year. And um, you know, we've got projects coming up in Georgia, Sweden, and one in Japan. So we're very flexible. We'll go where the work is. But we tend to control everything in-house. So we, you know, we have our own people who do everything and uh, our own equipment, a lot of it bespoke, so that we can control start to finish. And you're operating this out of Sligo, is that right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I live in Sligo. I moved back about 12 years ago. I was away for about 26 years. But our office is, uh, is we, have a, we have an office in the UK where our factory is. Um, we have a new office we're opening in Nottingham in a couple of months. But yeah, pretty much everything runs from Sligo. And uh, yeah, why not? We're in the Northwest and we've got it all here. Indeed. Um, and during the pandemic, has the business been affected, operations, or have you got a flawless, seamless transition to this new hybrid working that we, we've all come to, to, to get used to now? I'd like to tell you we did, but we didn't. Um, sports pitches, I think, probably to a lesser extent than you know, restaurants and pubs, uh, are a luxury item in a way. So we, in 2020, uh, our sales dropped for the first time in 16 years by about 20%. And so we had clients, uh, Barcelona, Camp Nou, Inter Milan Training Centre, 
uh, FC Copenhagen, you know, big clients, big projects, all cancelled in about two weeks in April. So, you know, our sales dropped by about eight, eight million just straight away. Uh, thankfully, this year we're back on growth and we've, we've just finished 2021 with uh, 10% growth and about 15% of the bottom line. But it, it's meant that we've had to adapt how we work. Um, obviously, COVID, we have to look after our staff. That's absolutely key. But uh, we've worked from home. We've had a lot of projects, particularly projects in China, where we just haven't been able to get to. So we currently have two big projects in China. We're working on one and we, we're not sure if we're going to make the second one. So it's meant a lot less flying, which is in one way is a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had to adapt. We've had to have a very good look at our business. <clears throat> we have six companies in the group. And like any business, you know, when you're growing continually, you tend not to see the good and the bad. Um, so it allowed us to stop and have a good look. And, and we had some businesses that weren't performing. And we had one or two businesses that we completely ignored. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to go through it again, but it hasn't been all bad. Yeah, and it has allowed a lot of companies to put their foot on the ball, forgive the pun, to try and reassess and 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 and, and plot a new course for themselves. So, in the context of um, the new world that we're living in now, what are the projects that that you're working on? At the moment, I suppose the big one is Qatar. Um, although everything is 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 pretty much finished in Qatar, we in Russia we actually focused on building most of the stadium pitches. Mm. And in actual fact, we should have been building the training pitches because there are an awful lot more training pitches. So in Qatar, we've we've built just under fifty training fields, and we've built one stadium for the World Cup. But we've stitched with our hybrid. Cisgrass, this is where we inject fibers into the surfaces. We've just finished doing seven of the eight World Cup stadiums. So we didn't quite get eight out of eight, but we seven out of eight is not bad. It's not um, bad at all. Actually, just could I pick you up on that, the technology around the um, synthetics and the material mix in a stadium now. How has that, uh, that changed and developed over the course of your business, say? I think the, the biggest <clears throat> the biggest change is the money that's particularly gone into football, uh, which means that aesthetics are incredibly important. Mm. Um, so if you look at the Premier League and, and the billions that are involved, they do not want to see pitches that are kicking up turf all over the place, bad ball roll, bad ball bounce. So <clears throat> a pitch, if you take, say, for example, the World Cup final pitch, which is now a standard pitch we do, that has hybrid, which is 5% artificial fibers injected into it. That gives stability. It has an aeration system under the pitch, which allows us to blow hot and cold air and play around with uh, the growth of the, of, of the, uh, the grass. Um, we've got lights, artificial lights, lighting up the pitch to get the grass to grow. So there's, it's completely changed, and it continues to evolve, mainly because stadiums are becoming more and more, I think, they're not grass friendly you know Mm -hmm. you've got big stands big stadium roofs no air movement no light and that's just not good for grass so we we have to be continually evolving and 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 just and just developing 
Now, international sports, as you said at the outset, there is is a huge industry now, and there's various factors that are responsible for uh, growth trajectory. But could you walk us through some of them um, as they pertain to your particular industry, the global art- artificial turf market? Like, what are the the issues that are unique to you in this in this world? We've got a couple of really major issues, which pretty much revolve around sustainability. Uh, our use of plastic is, is, is obviously very significant. So we operate in three markets. Artificial pitches, which are 100% artificial. You see them in most schools. They're fantastic. You can play in all weathers. But they're made out of plastic, and we also use infill materials that are recycled. Um, then you've got hybrid, which, again, we're using plastic and then you've got natural grass, which is fertilizers and chemicals. So each of those sectors has you know, issues in terms of inv- the environment and sustainability. So for us at the moment, we're working with the research institute in, in Italy to develop a biopolymer. So actually a polymer that will basically dissolve in the pitch. So we won't have the issue of what's happening with plastic and where we're taking it. In terms of natural grass pitches, we've moved to organic fertilizers, which sounds great, mm. uh, and they are pretty good, but they're they're not perfect. We still end up with having lots of diseases. So, those are the big the big challenges for us are going to be the use of plastic, recycling, uh, lots of old artificial fields, massive massive issue around the world. Um, we're currently part of a group in the UK that's hoping to build a new factory to recycle those. So I think we're we have big challenges ahead. And it's balancing up the need of, you know, of, of government and people, and you know, do they want to? Do they want children to be playing sports, or do you want them watching uh, watching the TV? And that is the challenge. You were involved, uh, I know, recently with the um, Connacht GA Centre of Excellence. Yeah. Um, do you think that's the future of our sport here in Ireland? I don't know if it's the future, but it's certainly one of the most impressive facilities. I've and I travel all over the world. And when you go when you go to it, and I, if you haven't been to see it, you really need to see it. It's absolutely superb. I mean, to see a full size pitch, same size as Crow Park, yeah, under its own. George, you might just take us through the dimensions because I I do think that that's something people don't realise the scale of this um, build. Well, to give, yeah, structure. to give you an idea, uh, Mandy, a football pitch, let's call it a soccer pitch, is about seven seven and a half thousand square meters. A Gaelic pitch can be from. 11 up to 14, 14 and a half. So we're talking just nearly 14,000 square meters. Under a dome, the center is 25 meters high and the sides are 21 meters. And I honestly, I have been all around the world looking at stadiums, facility. I was in Mexico in November. I've never seen anything like it. And it's all down to a couple of, a couple of people, John Prenti, who had a vision and the GEA followed his vision. And then, you know, the, the, the whole thing was put together. It was Tobin's engineers, John uh, Puntis, who, who did the groundworks and the pitch. And we came in and did the artificial. But I think it's a for our climate in the west of Ireland, it really works here because you know what it's like. We're raining pretty much continuously. And, you know, to bring children, young adults into a facility where they can play a full game of hurling or a full game uh, of Gaelic indoor is just, I think it's magnificent. And I, and I hope it I hope it grows. And presumably it's hugely expensive, is it? It's actually, you say that, but I don't know the final figures, but I've, I've seen numbers quoted of 
I think it was five or six million. I actually think that's phenomenal value. Mm. Phenomenal value. You know, I mean, a, a pitch that we build overseas can be two million, two and a half million without a roof. So actually, I think the the, the, the NUIG Connick Air Dome is good value for money. Um, and I, I think people will genuinely, genuinely be amazed when they see it. Uh, and quite frankly, love to see one in each province. Can I just go back to the the World Cup in Qatar for a, sure. a brief moment, George, before I let you go? Um, this World Cup is likely to be a very different experience for football fans because of the location, the timing uh, within the season. What do you expect? Uh, what what you've seen the stadium now? What, what, what do you think fans can expect from from World Cup, twenty twenty two? It's going to be a different experience, but. Certainly, all the World Cup facilities, the stadiums, are excellent. They're all finished. They're in great condition. I think if you're if you're looking at you know fans flying in, socialising, I think that's all going to be quite different. Um, our understanding is a lot of people will fly in from Dubai, Abu Dhabi, in and out for the game. Um, there are going to be facilities in Qatar where you can have a drink and stuff, but. You know, there's always apprehension about World Cups. We had it before Russia. I actually think it'll 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 perform well. I think people have just gotta gotta be a little bit open minded on it. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues with it in the last few years in terms of you know employees, labor. Um, we made a conscious decision that we would just bring our own people uh, from our office in, the, in Dubai, uh, in and out, and and we handle it that way. But overall. I think once people start to see it, the games start to be played, uh, it'll be fine. It'll be, it'll be a good tournament. And what was your experience working with the Qataris like? I put them down to work, like working with all, well, most customers. When you're in football, we tend to deal with either some really practical people or some very egotistical people. Um, so we have a lot of very rich owners um, who um, have various demands. Qataris were, were, were fine with us. I mean, we tend to be, always be brought in at the end. We're doing the grass. Mm. The big, the big stuff is the stadiums. Um, although what we what we try to point out is, you know, if the grass isn't right, there's no point having a game. Uh, so we actually like to think that we're, you know, people will, people will look at a pitch, a grass pitch during the game for ninety minutes. They're going to look at the stadium for ten. So that's how important it is. George, I can't let you go before I ask you about Sligo Rovers. What are they up to up there? What's the plans? Well, they've got great plans, actually. Their chairman, uh, Tommy Higgins, is a, is a very good friend of mine. And they have announced a development plan, which is to try and make, I suppose, the club more self-sufficient, uh, put an academy in place, which is it's in place, but to have new facilities. So we become the center of, um, of, of football or soccer in, in the Northwest. It's a great plan. It's a great vision. And obviously, they've got to get out, raise money and funding. But for the first time, there is documented on paper an actual plan for the club. And and we need it to happen because, you know, League of Ireland soccer, we cannot have clubs having to, you know, raise funds twice a year and, and chasing the same people for, for, for money. So I think they've got a great plan. Um, and yeah, we, from my side... I'm fully supportive of it and we will do anything we can to help them. 
Great. So let's hope we see a Camp New style pitch up at the showgrounds someday soon. Okay, we leave it there. That's George Mullen, who is the founder and owner of the CIS Group. George, thanks so much for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you very much, Mandy. Bye bye. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, one of the major realisations that COVID-19 has delivered to us all is that employers are finally recognising and rewarding talent. So creating talent has now become one of our biggest priorities and also potentially our biggest problem. So how do we create it and what role can higher education play in developing talent and delivering the skills that our economy actually needs right now? I'm joined to discuss these issues as well as a new collaboration between TUD and UCD by Dr. Deirdre Lillis of TU Dublin. Deirdre, thank you very much for coming into the studio and joining us today. Thank you, Mandy. Delighted to be here. Now, you might start us off today by telling us a little bit about your own background and the evolution of this collaboration I mentioned um, and take us through some of that. Sure. Thanks, Mandy. Um, I suppose in a nutshell, myself, who am I? Um, I spent uh, two decades in Irish higher education um, I suppose making universities work better for their stakeholders um, is my thing, really. That's what I'm most passionate about. So um, you particularly around graduates, getting them into employment, working with enterprise um, before uh, Convene, which is the project I'm leading at the moment. Um, I was head of computer science in Dublin Institute of Technology at the time, uh, working at the heart of the Dublin technology sector. Um, trying to satisfy the insatiable uh, demands for talent in that sector. Um, I've had a number of recent roles um, in the Higher Education Authority, uh, kind of working at the national landscape, which I really enjoy, I must say, um, and kind of at the heart of the technological university developments over recent years. So my role at the moment is leading the Convene project. Um, it's transforming how universities work with enterprise. Um, I suppose Convene, what is it? Um, it's at its heart a collaboration between, as you said, the two largest universities in the state, uh, T Dublin and UCD. More importantly, we have 40 enterprise partners involved um, from seven sectors, everything from sort of ICT and pharma all the way across to creative and cultural and social enterprise. Um, so we're working together, looking to see how we can work together, if that makes sense. and. It's one of the largest um, non-capital investments ever in Irish higher education. It's it's nearly uh, 18 million euro over four years um, funded from the Human Capital Initiative, which is essentially basically making universities more innovative, more agile in response to enterprise needs. Um, I would say I'm really proud to say it's led by two females, um, myself in TU Dublin and Professor Susie Jarvis in UCD. I think we, we've a way to go yet on that agenda in higher education. So that's particularly, um, uh, particularly proud of that. Yeah, and we might come back to that issue of, of gender balance uh, later on. But can you just talk uh, about how Convene will operate? How does it function? You know, I think... One of the challenges, the big challenge we're trying to address, I think, is that I think everybody agrees sort of the days of the ivory tower are gone. You know, um, that that idea of the sage on the stage, that lecturer sort of broadcasting information or, you know, universities courting enterprise um, mainly for philanthropic donations. I mean, that that model is gone. And I think most universities do get that. But what they're really struggling with is how do you do that? How do you engage meaningfully? Mm -hmm with enterprise, but in a way that is 
good for enterprise, that there's value in that for enterprise. So where Convena sort of positioning itself is, you know, trying to find those light touch, um, low commitment interactions that happen more frequently. So connecting up our students with enterprise mentors, for example, um, connecting, you know, breaking down our big programs into small bite sized just in time learning kind of micro credentials is the buzzword on it, you know, um, you know, for example, in Convene, we're working, uh, uh, doing a lot of really good work on the bio economy. But bio economy is one where we're certainly working on huge opportunities for Irish SMEs in that space. You know, it's all around re reducing waste and recycling waste and repurposing it um, for different things. Most SMEs don't need a master's program in that. They need sort of small bite-sized chunks, um, you know, just just enough learning and then to put them on a pathway to more expertise if they, if that's what they need, you know. Um, we, for example, the Irish Exports Association, we're working very closely with them at the moment. Transport sector has obviously been hit with Brexit and COVID and, and now there's new climate action measures coming down the tracks. So we're working very closely with them to develop sort of tailored pathways of learning for their members, you know. Um, so so what would happen there is you're in a dialogue and a discussion with the Exporters Association, for example. They're talking to you about, look, over the coming number of years, we are going to need this type of graduate. We're going to need somebody who's got this skill set to come out of college and join us. And so you're tailoring these uh, courses to be bespoke and specifically directed towards individual industries. That, that's half of the, the equation okay. um, and there's certainly a lot of that goes on. I think with Convene as well, what we're trying to do is get out into enterprise and work with the people who are currently there, uh-huh. uh, trying to upskill them, but doing it really, really tailored. You know, for example, with Irish Ex- or, you know, maybe uh, another partnership, maybe to give you a flavour. Mm. Um, we're working with Screen Ireland in the film industry. Um, they have a lot of really talented people, you know, years of experience, um, but no formal accreditation that's recognising that experience. So we're working directly with them. TU Dublin, for example, comes in and and provides the accreditation, um, but then they deliver their own programmes to their workforce. um, And we also recognise their their learning pathways in that. You've got 20 years experience, as you said, in the higher education space and you're now leading this programme. You mentioned there that you intend this programme to be an exemplar of the female leadership across higher education and business. I wish you luck because, you know, the statistics have always been very bad uh, and I don't think they're improving at the scale that we need to. We look at Ireland where there's just 13% of our CEOs are female. How can you, in that environment promote um, the advancement of of more women at senior leadership roles? I think my own experience, I've I've been a female in technology and a female in academia um, and neither are renowned for their progressive approaches (laughs) to to gender equality or or inclusion in general, to be honest. Um, I think there's been a lot of progress and I think that needs to get recognised. You know, I think particularly in universities, we have four female uh, university presidents, which is fantastic. Um, historic. Lo- yeah, historic. <laughs> a, a lot more needs to be done, I mm-hmm. think, because it has to, you know, it has to become part of that, cult- the whole culture, you know, the whole way down. 
um, the ranks and that. But um, I think, you know, one really exciting partnership we're working with in, in Convene is with women in technology and science um, who are who are trying to promote female careers in STEM in another really tough sector to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get gender equality in. And we're working with them on a really exciting framework. I think it's groundbreaking. I think it's called Skilling for Potential, where we focus in on key career transitions, you know, so maybe you're first team leadership role or your first role out of college or your first step up into a senior leadership role and and look to see what supports females need just around that transition point. So it might be a mentor who's been on that journey before. There might be some micro credentials. There might be some additional support. So that that's a really exciting partnership for me. Um, I think, you know, things that work and have been shown to work are things, role models are so important. Mm -hmm. Um, Accessible role models, people you can relate to, not maybe the high flyers that have set up the billion euro unicorn companies, but, you know, maybe the person who's one step up from where where you want to be, you know. Something that's attainable, Attainable, achievable, yeah, realistic. Now, you mentioned also that there's taxpayers' money being spent here. um, And I'm kind of wondering, we're doing a lot to facilitate business and and employees for business. Do you think that we should be asking industry maybe to do a bit more? I yes, I think, um, but only when universities become more relevant. I think there's there's a few things in my head, and and I think they're they're mind shifts really, rather than massive new investments. I think a few things that would really help if universities start to see they have at least three campuses. You know, we have our traditional physical campuses. We have our online campus where we've operated for the last two years. But I think we also have an enterprise campus, which is reskilling, upskilling the workforce that are there at the moment. Um, we, you know, there's research that says that um, the average employee now could expect to have five different careers over the course of their lifetime, 20 different jobs. So upskilling and keeping that uh, enterprise campus is as important as the traditional CAO cohort, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, I think enterprise in Ireland spends nearly a billion euro a year on training, you know, so it is absolutely part of our, our corporate culture to upskill our workforce, but very little of that is actually contracted to universities. So I think the appetite is absolutely there. Universities have to step up and become more relevant, but mm. and I think enterprise will meet them meet them a long way along that journey um, if if uh, if that's if that can be achieved. That's an interesting point. You've mentioned twice there that you feel universities need to become more relevant. Uh, we're learning as we go, aren't we, that uh, these new technological universities are perhaps much more connected to the industry than the other traditional uh, universities. Why do you think that's so? I think very much heritage. It's it's where I, I certainly I, I worked in a small regional institute in, in Tralee at the very start of my career and I worked in Dublin Institute of Technology and now in TU Dublin. So it's very much part of the DNA. It was always there. You know, um, we never validated a programme, for example, without in, industry experts Um very much attuned to it. Having said that, I think I'd be shot for saying it's the traditional <laughs> universities are definitely moving into that space as well. So there is a convergence. I do think universities get that they need to do this. What they are struggling with is how and that that's where Convene comes in, I think. So they're becoming a little bit more like you. Are you becoming a little bit more like them? 
probably, yeah. What what gets funded and measured gets done a lot of the time, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be very careful how we measure our universities and 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 what we fund because um, you can force convergence if if you're not careful on some of those things, you know. Our education system um, and our really well-educated workforce are such a huge part of our success. Um, if we stop producing this type of talent, um, these type of students, we could lose a lot. So it's in everyone's interest that, that courses like this work. Have you had a really good response from business to it? So far, so so good. I think particularly uh, we've had a really strong appetite for some for some of the initiatives. Um, we have an enterprise mentoring program where we team students up with an enterprise mentor to help them prepare for either graduate or placement or internships. That's been really I was astonished at the the response to that mm. um, very much in the, that sort of early access to the talent pipeline. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about the tourism industry? Um, because, you know, it's just had such a huge hit and it's such a big part of uh, Ireland's employment mix. Uh, do you have collaborations going there? We do. Actually, it was one of our very first, um, I think, early wins in, in Convene. And it, it was even before we'd funded because we were funded, sorry, um, we, after that first lockdown, I mean, the tourism sector mm-hmm. almost vanished overnight and there was huge um, tracks of the the economy that disappeared and people unemployed literally overnight, you know. And we, we did sit back very quickly and say, look, what can we do here? Can we step up with anything to, to help? So we worked with UCD, um, developed a diploma in transversal skills or transferable skills, you know, soft skills and things like creativity, innovation, mm-hmm. focusing on the kind of skills that could move people from one sector to another, make them employable in another sector. And and, and they might not even see their transferability themselves. Uh, absolutely. And, and drawing that out and, mm-hmm. and asking people to reflect on their career and, and all their achievements. And, you know, I think that that that, that was very, very popular. Um, we had a thousand applicants, I think, for a hundred places. And you know, you know, maybe one of our more high profile graduates, um, uh, Gina Murphy, who's a well-known Dublin restaurateur, um, she says it really sharpened her innovation, her digital skills, you know. So I think it was probably our first collaborative success with UCD and, um, you know, certainly, certainly gelled the partnership with, with the Innovation Academy and UCD. Is this something that was born out of COVID-19, the lockdown and all of that? Or was it something that you were going to do or working on anyway? It, it predated COVID because the funding call had been well out before the first lockdown. Um, it was part of the national initiatives in this space anyway. But I think Convene itself, when I look back on it, what we were working on initially were, you know, things like we knew the disruptions that were out there, green skills, you know, the climate action, um, digital disruptions, automation, all of that was was there still is mm-hmm. obviously um you know that idea that you know your first four years in college is not going to set you up for your next 40 in the workforce you know so that idea that you need to be constantly upskilling you know reinventing yourself almost so they were all the trends at the time um you know the covid lockdowns hit i think if anything all of those have been accelerated you know um that idea that you have to be able to move between jobs, between roles, between sectors even, um, has become much more exaggerated, I think. Um, we've heard a lot lately about the great resignation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's probably an exaggeration, but I know the HEA did research recently where 
45% of respondents said they were thinking about moving to a more progressive sector. Um, so, you know, that should give people, you know, uh, pause for thought, you know, to hang on to the, the good employees that you have. We've had the right to remote work earlier on this week, you know, so we're, we're probably entering the decade of disruptions, you know, so I think all those trends, what it boils down to really is people being agile, being adaptable, being resilient, being able to move, you know, capturing all the wealth and knowledge experience that they have, maybe constantly upskilling. You know, I think that's the environment we're in now, you know. Final question. What's your ambition for this programme? Lots and lots of different ambitions. Um, I'd, If I were God for a day, um, I think I would... I would take the best to convene and implant it in every Irish university, you know, I think as a model, as a model yeah, yeah. and or even the mindset that went with convene. I mean, our core mindset is what does enterprise need, not what it, universities are comfortable doing, you know, so that's really challenging for for universities, I think. But, you know, it if, if universities are more responsive, if they can uh you know, respond to public demands, to enterprise demands, it's going to be easier to get funding, you know, mm -hmm. because you've become re relevant. So that yeah, success breeds su success. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Deirdre, we'll certainly revisit this in the future, maybe with some of your partners. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to join with us today. Thank you very much, Andy. Delighted to be here. That was Professor Deirdre Lillis of TU Dublin, who's the project lead on the Convene collaboration between TU Dublin and UCD. And if business or students want to find out more, the website is simple enough. It's convene.ie and there's lots of really interesting material that you can source there. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. While we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've got a lot more time in that podcast, so there are extended conversations with the guests today. My thanks to those guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day.